0: Today's, we start Matthew. We start the Gospel of Matthew, which I'm super excited about, uh, to get into the Gospels. It's my favorite Gospel, anyway. And it's going to be pretty teachy. So, if you don't like history, I don't know what to tell you. The Bible is history, okay? Uh, I heard some pastors call it uh, his story. His story is history. And so, as we get into this, it's really critical to cover the background, especially for this book, the first book of the New Testament, uh, to bring you up to speed on what's been happening leading up to this point in history. Uh, Matthew doesn't give us that. He starts right off with the genealogy. So it's interesting because he doesn't even give us any information about himself other than the fact that he's a tax collector. I didn't really think about this until this week when I was studying, but Matthew, nowhere in any of the four Gospels do we hear a spoken word from Matthew. As much as we talk about him, as much as we you know love to read his book, we don't hear anything from him. And I think that's kind of cool because he didn't want to talk about himself. He wanted to talk about Jesus. And I thought that was pretty cool. Gospel, of course, means good news. Um, In the Greek, euangelion, uh, that word means a good report about an important event, and this certainly was that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, all of the Gospels take place over a period of one lifetime. You know the Old Testament took one thousand years to be written, a thousand years by multiple authors. The stories of the Gospels are written just over one lifetime and about a man who had a very short life, about 33 years. But a man who interrupted human history. I mean, when he came here, he was the dividing line. Um, whenever somebody writes a check, does anybody still do that anymore? <laughs> you do. Okay, good. Whenever somebody writes a check or signs a government document or whatever, they put the date at the top of that, and they are testifying to the fact that Jesus Christ came over 2,000 years ago and divided time. And the world has tried to get rid of that. Um, instead of calling it B.C. before Christ, they have cha- tried to change it to B.C.E., uh, to mean before common era. And they have taken A.D. in the year of our Lord and changed that to C.E., common, Area, common era. But I think it's interesting because it's still split. It's still divided. It's still divided at the place where the king came to earth and divided time. Wednesday night, Wednesday night, we all went and saw Christmas with the Chosen, which was a lot of fun. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, I didn't get to see everybody. I was kind of waiting in the lobby till the last second, Um, but it was more singing than I anticipated, (laughs) but I thought that the episode itself, not enough. Okay. Mark says not enough singing. Oh, oh, they're going today. Okay. Wow. I won't give away anything. Okay, move on. (laughs) But I thought that the episode was really good. I'm not going to talk about it, but it was really good. One of the things that's challenged me with that series, and you guys know I like it, but one of the things that's challenged me is my preconceptions of who I thought the disciples were. Like, we have these pictures in our mind of who the disciples are, and it's really challenged that. Like, when Peter, when they rolled him out... Um, he's this scrawny, you know, short little guy, and I'm like, that's not right. Like, I always thought of Peter as this big, burly fisherman guy, um, but the Bible doesn't say that. And so I had to get past what they look like, and then try to pay attention to how they act. And of course, he's hot-tempered, and he shoots off at the mouth, and he gets in over his head. And the Bible does tell us that. And so I look at that, I'm like, man, that's pretty cool. But you know, these images in our mind, uh, it really challenged that. And Matthew in particular has drawn some criticism on how they've chosen to portray him. Um, it's almost like he is on the autistic spectrum. Uh, if you've seen the series, um, he shows very little emotion. Uh, he's very concerned with germs and staying clean. And he's very cognitive. He's always thinking. He's always calculating. Um, and he's just a really different kind of guy. And the disciples were already disgusted that Jesus chose him to be part of the group. Uh, But his personality takes it to a whole nother level. And they were disgusted because he was a tax collector, right? When Jesus walked along his booth and asked him to come along to follow him, the disciples couldn't believe it. Uh, They hated tax collectors more than people hate the IRS today right? Like people don't like the IRS. I think it was um, interesting because, you know, good news is coming from a tax collector. I think we'd all like to hear some good news from the IRS today instead of bad news. But they hated tax collectors. Um, in, the, in the scriptures, they often pair sinners and tax collectors together, Like they would say he ate with sinners and tax collectors. Like that's how little they thought of tax collectors that they paired those two together. The only people that would hang out with them were other sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. So nobody else would hang out. These are the people that he invited to hang out and have dinner with the day that Jesus asked him to follow him. So he went back to his home and he opened up his home. He threw a feast and these are the people that he invited that Jesus sat down with Um You know, I think it's interesting because Matthew, when Jesus called him, uh, he opened up his heart to Jesus. Uh, If you look at it, his name originally was Levi. That was his original name. So when you read that in the other gospels, they say Levi, son of Alphaeus, and he was the tax collector. But when he walked by and he said, you know, Matthew, son of Alphaeus, follow me. And he did. He opened up his heart. And then the next thing that he did was he opened up his home. He opened up his home. And then the last thing that he did is he opened up his hands. Like, he was somebody who kept detailed records of what everybody owed. He was good with numbers. That's the reason why he was in that position. And when he left, God said, what's in your hand? You know, you've got, you've got a pen in your hand. Like, that's what you're used to. I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that skill, that talent that I've given you to praise me to glorify me. And here's the reason why they hated them so much. They hated tax collectors because some of them were actually Jews. They were actually Jews who were working for the Roman government. They were traitors to their people. Uh, They actually had paid a sum of money to the Roman government to be able to collect taxes in a certain region for a certain amount of time. And so they had a certain amount of money that they had to raise for taxes, and then everything else that they raised above and beyond that, they got to keep, and that's how they got paid. And most tax collectors were super wealthy. like They were far well off, which meant they were ripping people off pretty well. They were kind of bleeding their countrymen dry, and the fact that the Romans were occupying them and that they were taking over the country was bad enough, but then having somebody who was one of their own That was cheating them and robbing them out of what was already a meager existence made them public enemy number one. But here, God says, that talent that I've given you, I'm going to use that. You know, you think back to Abraham when God called Abraham and he had a staff in his hand. That's what he had. And God said, I'm going to use that. I'm going to use that to perform miracles like nobody else has ever seen. And then he took David and said, David, what's in your hand? You've got a slingshot? I can use that. And so whatever we have in our hands, whatever talents, whatever abilities, whatever things God's given us to do, we can use those to glorify him. And he expects us to, actually. We are to be about the business of the kingdom. So more tax collectors were were very, very wealthy. Um, that's why in the series, if you've seen it, that when Matthew goes from place to place, that he has a Roman escort. Uh, that's not in the Bible, but that's the reason why, because he was public enemy number one, and they wanted to try to keep him safe. Now, his is the only gospel that associates the name Matthew with tax collector. He mentions tax collectors nine times in his gospel, but he's the only one. When the other gospels mention tax collector, they say Levi, Levi, the tax collector, they associate his old name with his old life. And, you know, his name was Levi, which makes me think that he could have been from the tribe of Levi. And if that was the case, they were supposed to be the priests. They were supposed to be the teachers, the ones that served in the temple. And instead of doing that, he was serving himself and he was serving Rome. And when Jesus called him, To follow him, he called him back into the ministry, so to speak, called him back into service, which I think is a pretty pretty cool thing. But Matthew here, using his new name, which maybe Jesus gave him that name. God likes to change people's names. He likes to change their identity. So maybe Jesus gave him that name. But he uses his new name, which means gift. That's what Matthew means. um, And associates it with his old life. Because although he had closed that chapter of his life, he had moved on. He knew what he had been saved out of. And I think that's important. In our lives, we know what we've been saved out of, our testimony. We all have a testimony, regardless of whether or not you were saved out of a terrible situation or if you've been in church all your life, because we're all sinners. And I think that was his way, in humility, to say, I have you know, changed the chapter. I've turned the page. That is not me anymore. I'm not defined by that, but it is still part of my story. Uh, There was a story that I read this week about a team of psychologists that were doing a study on Jews that had survived the Holocaust, that had survived that period, specifically ones that had come out of concentration camps. And it was interesting because what they found was 40% of the people that they studied had gone on to become relatively well-adjusted, successful, um, normal People And 60% of them still struggled with the horrors that they had experienced during the war. And the common denominator that separated these people that the 60% were struggling with is that they were still dreaming and having nightmares and dwelling on their experiences. They hadn't turned the page on that, so to speak. They have not closed that chapter of their life, which really set the psychology world on its ear because what they said, or what the basis of the therapy was, is you need to dig into your past, right? Like, you need to relive it, you need to dig it up, you need to go through it so that you can heal. And instead, it was the ones that had said, you know what, that chapter of my life is done. Um, i That's not what defines me. I'm moving on. And Matthew did just that. He closed that chapter of his life. He was not defined by being a tax collector anymore. He was a follower of Jesus, and he had left... The old life behind. Uh, no more bookkeeping. but instead in Jesus um, in season two, what Jesus does is he invites him to become a record keeper of the things that's happening, the things that he's doing. and I just thought it was really neat when he is rehearsing his Sermon on the Mount, which people had all kinds of you know problems with that. but as he is rehearsing, he has Matthew write this down. He sent out all the other disciples as messengers to tell people to come to this event and he has Matthew write it all down. Why does he do that? Again, that's not in the Bible, but that's the way they've chosen to portray him. Uh, And they did it because his gospel, Matthew's gospel, is the most detailed of all the gospels. It includes more information than any of the other ones. Um, It was written around 50 AD, so about 17 years after Jesus had ascended into heaven. He compiles all of this information, and he writes his gospel. He pulls more references from the Old Testament than any other author, Uh, over 120 of them in his book. Uh, He mentions the kingdom of heaven 32 times, and that's a phrase that doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible, Um, that it might be fulfilled nine times, that which was spoken of 14 times. Guy had a good memory. He could remember things pretty well. He had written it down. The reason he used so many Old Testament references was because he was writing to a Jewish audience. Like that's the people that he was writing to. He wanted to answer Jewish questions and he wanted to prove to them that Jesus was in fact the long-awaited Messiah King it's just a little bit different. Since his goal was to show people that Jesus was the king, he traces his lineage, this genealogy that we're going to walk through, um, back through his adopted father, Joseph, all the way back to David, and then all the way back to Abraham. Um, People knew that the Messiah had to be a son of Abraham and a son of David. Um. Abraham to show that he had the right to rule racially he had to be a Jew and that he was a descendant of David royalty uh, like royally he had the right to rule and racially he had the right to rule uh, remember blind Bartimaeus when Jesus was walking through Jericho and Blind Bartimaeus is sitting there begging on the side of the road and he hears this commotion going by and he asks people like, what's happening? What's what's going on? Why is this commotion? And somebody says, well, that Jesus of Nazareth guy is going by and he shouts out to Jesus. He shouts out, son of David, have mercy on me. And he keeps saying it, son of David. And they tell him, they're like, shut up. Like, leave the guy alone. Shut up. He's not coming over here. And he keeps yelling out even louder, son of David, have mercy on me. And that's what stopped Jesus in his tracks when he said son of David, because that phrase wasn't thrown around loosely. Like when you said that phrase, son of David, people knew what you were talking about. You were talking about the Messiah. And that was his way of saying, I believe that you are the Messiah King, the one who is to come. So why does he start off with the genealogy? Being able to trace your ancestry back then was a big deal. Uh, my sister had, has done one of those, like I don't know, was it 23andMe or Ancestry.com things where you swab your mouth and you send it in and they tell you all about your ancestors. Um, I can tell you, our family's white and we have brown hair and we have blue eyes. We're from Western Europe, okay? Big surprise. She got it, She's like, check it out. I'm like, yeah, I could have told you that all along. <laughs> That's where we're from. But knowing your family line was important. Remember when we went through the book of Ruth, we talked about how land was supposed to stay in the family, like your inheritance was supposed to stay with you. But if it fell out, then you could have a kinsman redeemer, somebody in your family come along and buy that land back. And when Boaz came in, he had to prove that he was part of the family before he could buy that land back. Here's how important it was. When the people of Judah were coming back from Babylon, the priests that were there, they went back into the temple and they grabbed the records that they could find, the surviving records, and they were trying to, as people were coming back, mark their name off the list to you know, count the people that made it back. And there were some that came in that said, we're Levites, like we're from the tribe of Levi, we should get to serve in the temple, like we're ready to serve. And they couldn't find their name on the registry. Like it couldn't be verified, couldn't be authenticated. And so they were disqualified. They couldn't serve. They may have been, but they couldn't prove their lineage. That's how important it was. They had to be able to trace their family line all the way back to Aaron. So fast forward to 70, 80, when the Romans burned the temple, they destroyed the temple. They burned and destroyed all of the ancestral records that were kept in there. They were all destroyed. So from that point on... No Jew would be able to tell for certain that they had a right, a claim to the throne. None of them could do that because they're not able at that point either to trace back the tribe that they're from, much less their lineage that would have gone back to David. There's only one Jew that is able to trace back his lineage all the way back to David, and it's Jesus because it is perfectly preserved in this gospel. I think that's pretty uh, pretty awesome. Not a coincidence. I read this week that the new is in the old contained and the old is in the new explained. So the New Testament is in the Old Testament, you know, contained. That's the reason why we go back and forth so much with cross references and the old is in the new explained. What he wanted to do with all of these Old Testament, you know, uh, references was to prove to the people that Jesus was the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies. Why is that significant? It had been 400 years since anyone had heard anything out of God. They mentioned that on Wednesday night. 400 years since anyone had been walking around saying, Thus saith the Lord. couldn't imagine that. They call this the silent period. From the last prophet in the Old Testament, from Malachi, all the way to the forerunner, the one that was prophesied, that was going to prepare the way for Jesus, John the Baptist. So from Malachi to John the Baptist, 400 years. We've only been a country for like 250 years. So I can't imagine that much time going by. So they were ready for a Messiah. They were desperate. So why wasn't God speaking to them during this time? Uh, We're not given that information. We don't know why God wasn't speaking during these 400 years. But a lot was happening, obviously, during this time span. Uh, We left off Habakkuk, our last book, with God telling him that the Babylonians were coming. They were going to conquer them and carry them off into exile. And so that's where we left off. King Nebuchadnezzar conquered Israel around the year 598 BC. Uh, That's when Judah fell. And he carried off a young man by the name of Daniel. And King Nebuchadnezzar one day had a dream that really freaked him out. And he didn't know the interpretation. He was asking all of their wise men. They couldn't give him interpretation. And so Daniel was called in. And what he told Daniel was, I saw this vision. It was a statue that was made up of different types of metal, different types of material. And he didn't know what it meant. And Daniel was called in. And he told the king, here it is. That's a very detailed description of what it looked like. Uh, he told the king, he said, the statue that you see is a succession of kingdoms that are going to come after you. You, King Nebuchadnezzar, you are the greatest kingdom. You are the largest in the earth, and you are the head of gold. Like, you're the, you're the most valuable. But after you is going to come an inferior kingdom. And that is symbolized by the silver, the silver chest and the silver arms. Remember Daniel's prophecy? And it was to his son. After King Nebuchadnezzar died, his son took over and he was having the huge feast and they were drinking out of the cups that they had brought back from the temple. And a hand appears out of nowhere and starts writing on the wall. And everybody freaks out, and they bring Daniel in, and he's able to interpret what's been written on the wall. And it said, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. God is taking your kingdom, and he's giving it to the Medes and the Persians. And so that's what the silver represents, is the Medes and the Persians. Um, so they took over Babylon in 539 B.C., and Judah was still in captivity. But when they had been there 70 years, 70 years total, they were allowed to go back to their homeland. Super cool story. Don't have time to go into it today. Um, but the next kingdom that came along was symbolized by bronze in that midsection was symbolized by bronze. And that was the Greek empire. Philip of Macedon or Philip of Macedonia was able to rally all of the people in that side of the world with Greece and Macedonia and he became this big empire that was growing in the west um, and they were kind of the rival empire to the Medes and Persians in the east and they were battling and warring and King Philip was eventually victorious and he had a son by the name of Alexander, great kid. Alexander the Great. And as he was growing up, his dad recognized that he was more into books than he was the backyard. Like he was more of a student than anything else. And so his dad got him a tutor, uh, a guy, some guy by the name of Aristotle. And not a bad tutor to have if you're into education. So he was tutored by Aristotle, but at the age of 19 in 336 B.C., Alexander's dad, Philip, was assassinated. He was killed. So at age 19, Alexander takes over this expanding empire, and his anger over his dad's assassination turned into a rage, and he fulfills Daniel's prophecy by ruling the entire world. Daniel said, he said, this one will rule over all the earth. And in just 10 years, Alexander the Great conquered the whole known world pretty incredible. And so at age 29, here he is sitting on top of this empire and he's depressed. And he cries out weeping. He said, are there no more worlds for me to conquer? And so he falls into depression. And about the age 32 or 33, he falls into a drunken stupor and he dies. Now there's lots of theories on how he died, but uh, he was either killed or he died uh, around that age. And he split his kingdom up between four generals. Now, because the kingdom was split up between his four generals, there was all kinds of fighting, specifically between the kings in the north and the kings down in the south around Egypt. And who was caught in the middle? Israel, right? Israel was caught in the middle of all of this fighting, and they were trampled mercilessly. Um, And then they were conquered once again in 167 BC by a Syrian king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And we don't have time to go into how bad this guy was. He was a vile character. And one of the things that he did, um, well, first of all, he set himself up as a god. That's what Epiphanes means. He named himself that, and he said that he was god in human form. And he worshipped the Greek gods, and one of the worst things that he did is he took a statue of the Greek god Olympus and he set it up in the Holy of Holies. So remove that, put Olympus there, and then he went out to the altar in the courtyard there at the temple and he sacrificed a pig on the altar. Now a pig was the most unclean animal that there was to the Jews, and he sacrificed it on the altar, desecrated it, and then he took that pig into the temple and proceeded to smear blood all over the temple and desecrate that. That was the worst thing that he did. So um, then in 165 BC, a group of priests decided they had had enough. They weren't going to worship Zeus. They weren't going to take it anymore. And so they made up this incredible song. No, no. What they did is they started this guerrilla campaign that was headed up by a guy named Judas Maccabeus. So the Maccabeans, the Maccabean revolt started and they were able to push the Syrians out of Jerusalem and then they were able to start worship of Yahweh again. They cleansed the altar, they cleansed the temple. And so the story goes, they had only found one container of the ritual oil that was used for lighting the lamp in the temple. They only found one that hadn't been profaned. And so the story goes that they filled the lamp. There was only enough to last one day, but it lasted for eight days. And that's where Hanukkah comes from is those eight days, the festival of lights, which ends tomorrow. So that's where Hanukkah came from. And then the fourth kingdom to take over on the statue was in 63 BC that was symbolized by the legs of iron. That's okay. Symbolized by the legs of iron. Now, they weren't the largest kingdom, but they were the strongest militarily, and this was the Roman Empire. So they took over about 63 BC, and this brought us up to modern day. This is what was happening to the time of Jesus. So that's what went on during the silent period in Israel's history. Empire after empire, just ravaging the area and trampling Israel. They were desperate for a savior at this time. They were looking for the Messiah, the root of David, as he's called in Revelations. There were over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah. 300 There's all kinds of numbers. I've talked about them before, about the probability of a person fulfilling just seven of those prophecies, over 300 in the Old Testament. They were looking for a savior. So that's why Matthew starts off his gospel with the genealogy to show everybody, look, this is the Christ. So let's get into it. Bob said he was going to have a lot of fun uh, listening to me pronounce all of these names. So. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, who wore a bunch of pink clothes, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos. Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon. We're not done yet. We're not done yet. Had to take a breath. (laughs) After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud. And Elia, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Metan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Whew. Probably not going to find somebody's life verse in there anywhere. Sometimes the genealogies seem pretty boring, but they're significant. Nonetheless, 42 generations, three sections of 14. And these represent the three stages of Israel's history. The first from Abraham from the beginning all the way to David. So why to David? Why not Saul, who was the first king? When David was king, he wanted to build a house for God. And so he called in Nathan the prophet, and he said, I want to build a temple for God. I mean, he's out there in a tabernacle. He's in a tent. I want to build him a house. Here I am in a palace. And Nathan said, man, that's awesome. That's a great idea. You should do that. So David's excited. Nathan goes home and goes to bed, and God says, "Uh, Nathan, you spoke too soon. Like, that's not what I told you. David is a man of war. He's got blood on his hands. He cannot be the one that builds me a temple. His son Solomon will build it, but David can't do it. So Nathan had to go back in the next day and say, sorry, you're actually not going to get to build him a house. And here's what he said. So David goes to the Lord and the Lord says, listen, David, you wanted to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house that's what I'm going to do. There is going to be a Messiah, a king that's coming from your line, and he is going to rule on the throne forever without end. And David's blown out, obviously. God, why would you use me in that way? But he's predicting a Messiah. And so that's why he divides it at David. But Matthew does something really unusual, something unheard of in that day, in that he includes four women in the genealogy. This would never have been done. You would not include women in the genealogy. The Jewish men in that day had a prayer that they would pray where they would say, thank you God that you did not make me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. That's the prayer that they would pray. Not real complimentary. Um, But these four women, not just any four women, but these ones that were kind of scandalous, they weren't what you would call Proverbs 31 women but he puts them in here. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he tells us something significant. Let's look at the first one, Tamar. He could have just said Judah, the father of Perez, and moved on, but he includes Tamar in here for a reason. If you don't remember, uh, Tamar was the wife of two of Judah's sons, Judah, son of Jacob, And what happened was his oldest son was married to Tamar and the Lord said that he was a wicked man and he struck him down. And as we talked about in Ruth, it was your responsibility as the next brother in line to raise up a son for your dead brother so that his name would not die out. And so the second brother in line has to marry her and try to raise up a child. But the Lord says that he was wicked too and he struck him down. He died not a great resume for Judah unfortunately and he has a third son but he's kind of young and so he says listen Tamar why don't we wait until he's a little bit older and then I'll marry you to him and uh you know hopefully he'll be able to raise up a son for you but as he was growing up it became clear to Tamar he had no plans of marrying her off to his third son and so she gets pretty upset about this and She hears one day that Judah is going to go off to visit his flocks. Like it was time to shear the sheep, and they were going to throw a big feast, and he was going out there. So she finds out where he's going, and she beats him there. She races, and she sets herself up by the side of the road and dresses up as a cult prostitute. Now, this doesn't say a lot about Judah, again, in that she thought she could lure him in this way. And stinking Judah, he turns aside when he sees her, And long story short, the result of this little escapade is these two boys, Perez and Zerah. Not part of the history that the people of Israel wanted to remember when talking about their Messiah, right? Pretty, pretty scandalous. Next, you have Rahab. And if you remember when the Israelites were marching into the promised land, um, that one of the first cities they came to was Jericho. And Joshua sent two spies into the city to check it out, and somehow when they're there, they get found out. They get pegged as spies. And so they're being chased, they're being hunted down inside the city, and they end up at the door of Rahab. And Rahab is a prostitute. I don't know why they were there. Only God knows. But they were there, and they start talking to Rahab, and she says, I've heard of you guys. Like, everybody knows the story of how God brought you guys out of Egypt. Your God is the real God. Like, he's the true God. I believe that. And as the soldiers were looking for these two men, uh, she hides them in her place. And after she saved her house, was located on the outer wall of the city. And so she lets them down out the window to the ground so they can escape. But she says, when you come in, when you take over this city, when God gives, you, gives us into your hand, save us, save me and our family. And because she put her trust in God and in their people, uh, in his people, sorry, um, God saved them. Uh, they were brought out when the walls fell. When everything was destroyed, God saved them. And she ends up marrying this Salmon character. And they have a son named Boaz. You guys remember Boaz uh, in the book of Ruth. And Boaz, um, we have a third woman now to enter the history as he marries Ruth. Now, nothing wrong with Ruth except that she was a Gentile and not just any Gentile, but a Moabite Gentile. And the Jews hated the Moabites. They hated Gentiles. They also hated Moabites. And so the fact that a Moabite Gentile is part of the lineage of their Messiah raised some eyebrows. So she's in there. And then of course we come to the most famous descendant, which is King David. That's their number one King. And King David, Right? A man after God's own heart, except for the fact that he was a liar and a murderer and an adulterer. And they're reminded of this when they get to this story um, because it says that he had Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, that sounds pretty strange. He had a son by the wife of another man. And you know the story. David is up on his balcony one night and he's walking around and he wasn't even supposed to be there. In 2 Samuel 11, it writes that it was in the springtime when the kings went out to war and David decided for some reason to hang back at the palace. He decided to take this one off and hang back home. And when he's there, uh, he looks down and he sees Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Now Uriah was with the army. He was where he was supposed to be. David was not. And so he glances down and his glance turns into a stare and his stare turns into lust and his lust turns into an affair. And when he finds out, when he gets the news that that little flesh out session turned into a baby, then he decides the best thing to do to cover it up is to have Uriah murdered, to have him killed. And so he does. And unfortunately, the baby that was birthed from that union um, ends up dying. But they go on to have Solomon. So a cringy part of their history that they would rather not have remembered when they're talking about the Messiah. But Matthew includes them because God is saying my kingdom, the kingdom that I'm building, is different than the way that you guys thought it was going to be. It's not going to be limited to just Jews. And while we're on the subject of women, a little detour here, I'd like to point this out. That in the middle of a chauvinistic, male dominated society, God includes these women because Jesus, the Messiah, is the great liberator of women. Women's lib should be looking to Jesus because everywhere that the gospel is preached in the world, women are treated with dignity, they're treated with respect, they're elevated, they're not treated as objects. So Jesus is the great liberator of women. In Galatians 3, if you remember uh, when we went through there, Paul wrote, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ. One of the biggest issues that we have in our culture today is gender equality right? Gender equality. First gender confusion right now. We have gender confusion. So you have to figure out which gender you are before you can feel uh, whether or not there's equality. Um, That's what's going on in our culture today. Um, But people might get confused from time to time when they read Genesis and they say that God created the male and female. And then Paul says there's no longer any male nor female. So what's the deal? Well, when God created you, he assigned your gender at birth that's your gender. But when you stand in front of Jesus, spiritually, your privileges, your status as a Christian, there are no differences. There are no platforms. Nobody's above anyone else. All the ground is level at the cross. There's no confusion. That's what that means. Okay, back on track. The great liberator of women. Jesus's family tree. Matthew is pointing out here that the king has come in a very different way than they thought he would. Three things that the Jewish people valued. First of all, they valued family responsibility. Uh, We see that in the kinsmen redeemers, in providing for your family, keeping inheritance inside uh, the family, inside the tribe. So it was very important to them. And yet we have Judah and Tamar. They also valued sexual purity. If you were caught in adultery, the man and the woman were supposed to be dragged out to the public square and stoned to death, both of them. That was the penalty for sexual immorality. And of course, prostitution would have been viewed as extremely immoral, and yet we have Rahab and we have Bathsheba. The third thing that they held up as a virtue was racial superiority because they were God's people. They were the chosen race. And so they had racial superiority. Um, Marriages oftentimes were set up when the partners were still children. It was a way of them, you know, making sure that they kept the marriages, the families inside the tribes and that they came from good families. Sometimes I think we should go back to that. Family responsibility, sexual purity, and racial superiority. But the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords has what would have been considered in that day, certainly, some scandalous characters in his family. There's a saying that's uh, probably more true now around the holidays than it is at any other time of the year, and that is that you can't choose your family. <laughs> can't choose your relatives. We spend more time around them here in the holidays, but Jesus did. Jesus chose his relatives. He chose his family because he delights in rescuing and restoring and rebuilding. Matthew's showing us that the kingdom of heaven is for everyone, not just Israel. And that's an important fact because we should not say ever, shouldn't pass through our lips, that because I have this great sin in my past or because I have blown it in my family in some way or because I have this big sexual sin, this mess up in my past that God can't use me because he's used all these people in his family line, and he can use us no matter what. Um, you're in good company because when Jesus shows up, he makes all things new. Uh, he is called a friend of sinners. And that is true whether it was 30 years ago or 30 minutes ago. He's a friend of sinners. And sometimes people use that phrase, friend of sinners, to try and justify their lifestyle or whatever thing that they think is okay. But When Jesus showed up, people were changed. Like people had to make a decision. They had to decide, is this guy worth following? And when they came into contact with Jesus, they didn't leave the same. They left changed. So he is a friend of sinners, but he delights in restoring them and in changing them and making them new. He wants to call them into a kingdom life. Jesus came here to bridge the gap. The gap between our sin, which separates us from God, and walking in the kingdom life, being a part of his family. Matthew, you know, said Jesus came here to bridge the gap. He was a bridge builder. Matthew is a bridge builder too, and he builds that bridge by introducing us to this new book. Uh, He bridges the gap between the Old and the New Testament. If we were to jump from Malachi to, say, Romans or Ephesians, Um, we'd have some questions. We'd be confused. Great books, but without the context, we wouldn't know what was going on. So he bridges that gap. The theme of the Old Testament is that we're sinners, and the human race is drowning in sin and in desperate need of a Savior. And it is all about the promise, the promise that that Savior is coming. It started with the first Adam. The first Adam bombed out. He sinned. Sin entered the world. And throughout the Old Testament, we just meet time and time again, sin and sinners. The Old Testament is a book of promise where the New Testament is about the fulfillment of that promise. New Testament starts with the last Adam. In First Corinthians 15, 45, it says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And that is Jesus. Jesus came to save the generations of Adam. And we make a choice to let him rule and reign over our hearts. And we're born into the generations. We're born into the family of Jesus as childs of God. In Genesis 5, it's interesting because when he starts talking about the generations of Adam, the genealogies there, it talks about the men. And it says that they lived to be however many years old. And then he died. And then the next one lived. And then he died. And he died. And he died. It's kind of depressing. (laughs) It's a lot of death. But when you look at this genealogy, Jesus' genealogy, it's, and then he fathered, and then he fathered. It's a story of life. He's a life-giving spirit. Because the first part of Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Those are the wages. That's the Old Testament. But the New Testament is the second part of Romans 6.23. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the New Testament fulfillment of the promise. So not only does Matthew introduce us to a new book, but in his biography, he introduces us to a new king. I talked earlier about the writing to a Jewish audience um, to answer the Jewish questions and to prove that he was the rightful king. That phrase, kingdom of heaven, that is only mentioned in his gospel 32 times um, royalty, was his lineage. If you were going to be a king, you had to prove your lineage if you were going to sit on the throne. Compared to the other Gospels, Mark's Gospel was written to the Romans. Uh, His is a relatively short, fast-paced Gospel. Uh, It was written for people like us, people with short attention spans. Uh, he uses words like immediately. Immediately he went and did this, or immediately he got up and did that. And so it is a gospel that was written to people portraying Jesus as the servant. And that's something that the Romans could appreciate, was a servant, because they served the emperor, right? John's gospel was written to prove Jesus' deity uh, it was written to the entire world. John's gospel was, and he was written. It was written to show that he was the Son of God. That's why, for new believers at least, they are pointed so often to the Book of John. You know, his intimate relationship with Jesus comes out in his gospel because it's a very intimate gospel. He was part of the inner circle. I always love it that John calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved uh, in his in his book. I just think that's great. Uh, Luke. I'm excited that they left off that, well, I shouldn't say that. Never mind. <clears throat> we still have some that are yet to watch this. Show. Okay, I'm not going to spoil it. Luke, the doctor, writes uh, his gospel to a Greek audience. And Luke, as a doctor, wanted to stress Jesus' humanity. Um, not surprising that a doctor would want to talk about his genealogy. And Luke is the only other book that talks about that, and he traces Jesus' genealogy through Mary. So, Matthew goes through Joseph, and, and Luke goes through Mary to talk about his earthly lineage, and he traces it all the way back to Adam. So unlike Matthew, uh, he traces it back through Mary. So when you take all four Gospels together, when you look at all four of them together, you get a full picture, the full counsel of who Jesus is. So not only did he introduce a new book and a new king, but lastly, he introduces a new people and that's you and me the church he introduces the church the greek word is ekklesia and it's only listed here in matthew's gospel and it's listed twice literally ekklesia means the called out ones the ones who have been called out god's chosen people weren't just the jews anymore they included gentiles all of those that put their faith in jesus in his in his son are in the family Jewish people hated Gentiles more than they did tax collectors. Um, But Matthew's gospel gives us multiple accounts of Jesus and his workings, his dealings with the Gentiles. Um, We have the wise men. We're going to talk about the wise men in a couple weeks, and it is like one of my favorite parts of the nativity. Uh, You have these Gentile, you know, magi, these wise men from another country that travel all the way to Bethlehem to honor the new king. And then you, you have, let's see, what's next? We have Jesus healing the servant of the Roman centurion. Uh, the Jewish people even said, they said, this guy is worthy to have you go do this because he helped us build our synagogue and Jesus heals his servant. And then in Matthew 22, we have the parable of the wedding feast. And Jesus points this one directly at the Pharisees. And it's about a father who is throwing a feast for his son. And he sent out all the invitations And he tells his servants, he said, go tell everybody that the feast is ready. The marriage is about to begin. And they come back and they said, no one's coming. And he says, no, 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 go tell them the feast is ready. Like this is a big deal. And still nobody comes. And he's referring to the Jewish people. And and then the father says, go out into the highways and the hedges. Um, That's where that song came from, that old song, the highways and the hedges. Bring whoever you can. And they start grabbing people people that are not Jews, the Gentiles, and bring them in and seat them at the feast. They will be the ones that get to participate. And that's what he was using. And then, of course, when Jesus addressed his disciples and he told them to go into all the world and preach the gospel, all the world. Uh, When new believers read the book of Matthew, it was crystal clear that the kingdom of heaven was here now and it was comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. He wasn't just a king. He was the king of kings. And, you know, I've wondered, his was the first gospel that was written and it was written about 50 AD, as I mentioned. Why weren't these written sooner? It's because they went into all the world and preached the gospel. And I looked up this morning, I was like, what happened to Matthew, right? And church history says that Matthew was martyred. He was speared in Ethiopia. He was preaching the gospel in Africa and he questioned the morals of the king, and that got him speared to death. He died um, proclaiming the good news, the King of Kings. And if the team wants to come back up, they can. Uh, I read this story. It just kind of uh, touched me. But there was one day where King George V and Queen Mary, this would have been like in the early 1900s, they were out in the countryside taking a walk. And they came up on this cottage. And they wanted to take a break. They were kind of tired, so they knocked on the door, and this lady answered the door, and she kind of freaked out because she was like, it's the king and the queen. And she ran, and she told her husband, she's like, William, the king and the queen are here. What should we do? And he said, well, let them in, first of all. Let them in the house. And so they sit down. They go into the parlor, and they start talking. And uh, the king sees the Bible in a prominent place right there, the family Bible. And he says, I'm happy to see that you have the good book. And William says, well, your majesty, would you like to hear my conversion story? And the king says, yeah, of course. And so he tells the story with great enthusiasm how he came to Christ. And Queen Mary was so touched by his story, she had tears in her eyes. And she turns to his wife and she says, have you had, you know, a conversion story too? And she says, yes. And so she shares her story. And at the end of it, they're so touched by this encounter, they stand up to leave King George says, he says, you know, he says, we love him too. We love him too. So here you have one of the most powerful men in the world, King George, who says, we love the King of Kings too. So this book that we're going to jump into, we're going to get more into it next week. And it's kind of cool because it's the Christmas season. And this is what we're going to start off with is the birth of Christ as we start off uh, is all about the King of Kings, how the King has come. And the Messiah is here, and he's going to prove it to the Jewish nation through all of these Old Testament prophecies. It's going to be incredible. I'm happy to uh, to get into it. I'm excited. So that's what it's going to be about as we jump in next week.